0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Uh, we'll be looking at Mark 14 in just a moment. And uh, just want to encourage you, next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, and uh, because uh, historically churches swell on that day uh, with visitors and people looking to get back in routine and just coming to celebrate uh, Easter in church, uh, we're having, our service times are a little bit different. Uh, They're at 8.15 is our first service instead of 8.30. And that's 8.15, and there will be worship service going on in here and across at the Student Ministry Center at this hour, 9.45, same thing. uh, This room will be open, and then there will be a live band and a simulcast of this message over there uh, at 9.45. And 11.15, we'll have one service here, because historically, most people uh, who are doing family events will come early and head out to family activities. And so this service will only be one, or excuse me, at 11.15, there will only be one. We encourage you to invite someone. Now, I don't want you to invite someone who's already attending church uh, in this area, but invite someone who doesn't know the Lord or someone who's open to that. Uh, the best invitation you can get them is, or give them is the invitation to know who Jesus Christ is and what he's done through the resurrection. So uh, we're prayerfully considering next week and asking God to just introduce his son to people who don't know who he is. So we hope you'll join us in that as well. If you're visiting, my name is Mark, and I get to be one of the ministers here at our church. And I'm very excited to be a part of this church, and we're glad that you're with us today. We're heading toward completion of the final two weeks of a series called Relentless Pursuit, which has been through the Gospel of Mark, and we've been focusing on Mark has a very distinct style. He's showing us in the first eight chapters who Jesus is, and he's following it that up with what he came to do. And when he makes the turn in chapter 9 through chapter 16, he is focused solely on the death, the cross... And the crown that Jesus will wear because of what he did for us on Calvary. And today is a perfect day for us to head into the 14th chapter and talk about this. But I, I want to whine a little bit if you'll allow me to. And you really can't stop me because I have a microphone. So just let me tell you I'm going to whine a second. When you look at the scriptures, I was doing some research, and John MacArthur in his commentary on the New Testament said that there are 89 chapters in our Bibles on the life of Jesus. 89 42 of those 89 chapters focus on the last week of Jesus' life, up to the crucifixion. So 40, 45% of the entire Gospels are focused on this one week. And I have the task of trying to walk through that today in 28 minutes. That's not going to be able to happen. So my whine is, I'm not going to be able to talk about... Any or everything that's there, but I am going to tell you what we're going to talk about can be highly important to every one of us as we journey toward the cross and we try to understand its beauty and its power. So what we're going to focus on is the relentless pursuit of Christ, and if we may today, focus on how it can affect us. I'd like to read uh, this passage in particular from Mark 14, 22 through 28. It's just going to be a sample of what happened that week, that night that Jesus was murdered. While they were eating, Passover meal. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I wonder in that moment if they understood what he just did. I wonder sometimes if we understand what he just did. That night he took bread, and he took blood, and he gave them the bread, and he said, you need this. And he gave them the cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood, you need this. And little did they have any idea. I think they were clueless. Not because they were ignorant, but I think they were clueless because they couldn't open themselves up to what he was teaching, that they would understand within a mere 18 hours what that body and blood would mean. Verse 25, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. You will fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Interesting passage, focusing particularly today on verses 27 and 28. In context, they had all gathered on that last night of the Passover. It was Thursday. The Passover meal had ended. You end the Passover meal by singing uh, psalms. Some suggest that they may have sung the 136th Psalm. My research indicates they probably sang Psalm 115 to 118. They're called the Hallelujah Psalms. What's interesting about those particular groups of psalms is that it ends in 118 in verse 23 where it says, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad. To think that Jesus would have sung those words on the way to his murder is spellbinding. But they sang a song and they headed to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, most people believe that Jesus frequented the Garden of Gethsemane regularly because Judas knew where to find him. When Judas went looking for Jesus after the Passover, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he knew Jesus went to spend time praying with God. And on that particular night, many things would happen. He would be unlawfully tried, unlawfully convicted, and unlawfully brutalized. All of this for committing no crime. And that afternoon, he would be hung on a cross, and for six hours he would be on that cross, and at about three o'clock on Friday afternoon he would pass away. He would give his life up and die on that cross for the relentless pursuit and the things that God asked him to do. But I want to remind us where we were in Mark chapter eight, in verse 38, when Jesus said these words, whoever is ashamed of him, he would be ashamed of them. Today I want to talk to you about a topic, shame. I want to talk to you about the concept of shame. Judas was ashamed of Jesus because he didn't believe in Jesus. He thought Jesus was slow. He thought Jesus wasn't doing what Jesus should have been doing. And so in all of his shame, he betrayed Jesus, hoping he could force the hand and ended up killing himself in his shame. And then there's the shame of the other 11 disciples, who that night would turn away in fear and not do anything because they were scared of dying themselves. And what happened to their shame? Their shame became God's grace. And through that grace, they found life. So much so that in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it's recorded about those same disciples who ran away from Jesus that night in their shame. These words would be recorded just months later. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. The same Sanhedrin. When you read that word, it may not mean a whole lot to us, not because we're ignorant, but those aren't terms that we use today the sanhedrin that they stood before in acts chapter 5 and they were told if you don't quit preaching Christ you're going to die and they said you say what you've got to say we're going to keep saying what we have to say Jesus Christ is lord and they were persecuted for that and they left excited that they could suffer for the cause of Christ that same sanhedrin was the same group of men who convicted Jesus to death that night when he was captured so the boldness The change of what shame can become when we understand God's plan. So what I'd like to do this morning is walk you through those two verses, verse 27 and verse 28, and I want to show you the comparison and contrasting between where we find ourselves in our shame and where God wants us to find ourselves in him. Number one, see his knowledge when we're unsure. See his knowledge when we're uncertain, unsure. There are many times we don't know what God's doing, and when we don't know what God's doing, we panic. There are things that go on around us like suffering and difficulties and questions, and we wonder, where is God? And we cry out to God, and we wonder where he's going to be. Yet, I want us to understand here today that the disciples were in that moment when they were unsure what God was doing, when they saw Jesus taken, and they heard Jesus say in verse 27 that you will fall away. He uses the word scandalizo, which where we get our word scandalized. He said, you will be scandalized by this night. Your fear, your sin, your falling to temptation is going to put you in a moment of scandal and you're going to wonder what's going on. And Jesus wants them to know, I've got this covered. Even when we're unsure, he knows exactly what is taking place. The disciples couldn't embrace the fact that this man who could walk on water and raise the dead and heal illnesses and cast out demons, that he would so easily allow himself to be taken captivity, and tortured, that instead of showing his power and his might, he would just take this over and over, the humiliation and the scandal to himself. That's why Jesus said, you will fall away, because Jesus knew what would happen, because Jesus knew what the scripture said. He didn't know what to happen because God put some memory chip in him that had a whole map of his life ahead of him. I don't believe that for a second. But Jesus knew what the scripture said would happen, and he was sure that God would work through that. So when we're unsure, we need to look to what Christ has already told us. In fact, Jesus knew the future, but he knew how it would affect the past as well. In Zechariah chapter 13, this is what Jesus quotes when he told the disciples, this this tonight is going to be hard. It's going to scandalize you. He said, quoting Zechariah 13, "Awake, O sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now see, we hear the quote of the back part of that verse, but the significance of the first part of the verse is that it says that God will be the one who will strike the shepherd, and God will strike the shepherd who's like him. This prophecy is the fact that Jesus came for this relentless pursuit, and he knew that it would not be Satan, it would not be sin, it would not be the Romans, it would not be the Jews, it would be God who would strike him. And when God struck him, On that Friday afternoon, his disciples would take off in shame, and they would be scattered. Jesus knows the future. Jesus knew the future, even when we don't. And the thing that amazes me is he saw it coming, and he never flinched. Not once. Now, he asked God, could we do it a different way? He knew it was headed his way. And he said to God, is there any other way we can accomplish what you need me to accomplish? And God was silent. And in God's silence, Jesus still chose to trust that God knew the future based on everything he knew from the scriptures. The second thing I want us to see is not only were the disciples unsure that night what Jesus was talking about, but see his courage when we're afraid. The disciples went really quickly from being confused to scared for their lives, he said, you will all fall away. You will fail me, and you will all leave me. And Peter would argue, we know the text, Peter would say, there's no way. Everybody else could fall away, I'll never fall away. We've all made those promises. You remember those, those foxhole prayers we make? God, if you get me out of this situation, I promise I will always... How, how did those work? Mine never worked out more than took time to get out of the foxhole. And Peter made a big promise, and Jesus said, Now, Peter, you gotta understand, you will all fall away. Even you, three times tonight, you were in your fear, you are gonna deny me. And he was correct, because remember, Jesus knows. But Jesus, the courage that Jesus shows is amazing to me. Listen to Proverbs 29:25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare. That's a warning. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. When you read this proverb, it didn't look like Jesus was kept safe, but because Jesus knew who God was, even going through difficult times of suffering and punishment and pain was not so much to keep him from understanding that if God could raise people from the dead, God will raise people from the dead, just like he promised. And he showed great courage, but he said, you're going to be scattered, you're going to be sent out. And I just, all week long, I felt like I just needed to say this, and I don't know if I'm saying it to someone in the room or if I just need to say it to myself and confess it. I don't judge the disciples for being scared. They had a right to be. If you see them take an innocent man and torture him to the degree they torture Jesus, then what would a sinner expect, an insurrectionist expect So I don't think there's anything wrong with the disciples seeing what they did to Jesus, and their whole world was crushed because they didn't understand what God was doing. So in that moment of confusion, we all get scared. I don't care how old you are. There's a loud noise, a loud boom, a slamming of a door. Someone breaks something behind you, and none of us turn around and go, in all of my wisdom, this should not shock me. Now we all snap around and go, wah! And then you see what it is and you either laugh or you look at him, and you tell your kids, stop it, whatever the case of the source is. But we all can be, when we're unsure of what's going on, fear is easy to see. Jesus warned them in Matthew 10, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. He'd warn them, it's gonna be hard. Following me is not gonna be an easy thing. In Matthew chapter 26, after all the events of that night had taken place, Matthew records, all this took place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus knew what the Bible said, and everything the Bible said came true. And yet, at the end of that, Jesus knew that they would leave him. And you contrast their natural fear with Jesus' incredible courage. And I just put a list here, and and I was looking at it this week, and it just to say Jesus is amazing is such an understatement he was willing to bear the hatred he was willing to feel the physical pain the indignity he was stripped naked and his body was stretched while nude in front of people that were mocking him they tore into his back they tore into his buttocks they tore into his thighs they opened his body up the entire time he's nude absolutely showing all indignity and yet here's here's where i'm a little strange When I was listing the things that happened to him, the one that made me angry, indignant, the one that still, right now, I can hardly say without gritting my teeth, is he let Judas kiss him? I, I couldn't. I I mean, if Judas had to come and identify me, the moment he leaned in to kiss me, I would have put my forearm on and said, "Okay, yeah, they get the point. I'm him." But to give him the opportunity to use a kiss as an act of betrayal, the relationship he had with Jesus, how did Jesus let that man kiss him? The same way he lets me worship him. No different than Judas. I kiss Jesus all the time, wanting something in return. And it's just, it's made me mad at myself all week long. He took a beating, death on the cross. He bore the sins of not only his disciples, but he bore the sins of the ones who who said crucify him. He bore the sins of the one who was traded for him, Barabbas. He bore the sins of the Romans that were torturing him. He bore the sins of everybody. He went to that cross and he gave everybody that cross. That was his pursuit. That's who he was and why he came. And was he angry? Was he dismissive? Was he judgmental? Absolutely not. Listen to Hebrews 2.11. Both the ones who make men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not what? He's not ashamed of our shame. He's not ashamed of our failure. He's not ashamed of our weakness and our fear. 1 Peter 4.16, Peter, who spent all the time hiding in the shadows, he was courageous enough to stay with Jesus, but he, he didn't have courage enough to be right there, identified with him. He was always in the shadows. And in the shadows, when they said, aren't you one of his, he, he lied. One time, he even used foul language to show that there's no way I could be one of his. Listen to the way I just talked. First Peter 4.16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. There's a big difference between Peter in the Gospels and Peter in the book of Acts. What was the difference was when they finally understood the crucifixion and the power of the resurrection. Before they were unsure and they were afraid, but Jesus was certain and Jesus had courage. And thirdly, see his grace when we're failures. I love verse 28. I think it had to have been missed that night. The reaction of the disciples is they missed this whole point and this is the kicker. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. See, they didn't understand what was coming that night, but he said, listen, tonight's not going to make sense to you, and tonight's going to scare the fire out of you, and you're going to be scandalized because of your weakness of your faith. But when it's done, and I raise from the dead, I will meet you in Galilee. There is another chapter coming, no matter what this chapter looks like. There's a better day coming, because Jesus knows he'll be raised from the dead. And he looked death in the face and he stayed exactly in the path of death. He stayed the course. I wrote those words and I thought, that's ridiculous, that's a cliche. But that's all I could come up with because it's true. He read what the Messiah was to do. The Holy Spirit was leading him toward that. He did not always want to do it for fear, for pain, for the tragedy of it. He knew the pain that would come on him. He he bled that night in the stress of knowing what was Coming his way. And yet the end, what did he do? He stayed doing exactly what God asked him to do. He was relentless in his pursuit of God. And he would not be detracted. He had the keys of death and hell, but the price to hold those keys cost him everything. The keys of death and hell were in his hands. And the weight of those keys, the cost of those keys, the price to be able to turn that lock and unlock death forever, cost him everything. In Hebrews 2.14, the author of Hebrews says, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And yet, the promise that we speak of next week, the celebration of bringing together all of this in the resurrection is the celebration for sure. But he had talked about this. He stayed the course. Listen to John chapter 16, verses twenty or 32 and 33. On that night, and most people believe that this passage of John is probably being spoken while they were walking to the garden. That night he said, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Shame. I I used to, when I was younger, say this. I don't know why I said it, but I'd be talking to my friends honestly, and I'd say, there's about 30 minutes of my life I wish I could go back and erase. And that 30 minutes encompassed four or five moments when I said something I shouldn't have done, when I didn't say something I should have said, or when I committed something hoping no one found out, and I've lived in those moments. And I used to say, if I had 30 minutes of my life I could erase, I would go back and erase. I'm 50 years old now. If I had four hours, I could go back in my life in a race. I can live under the weight of my shame because I did it. And I think this is one of the few times I can stand on this stage and everybody in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about. That every one of us looks back and can't believe we did what we did. And Satan wants to use that shame to kill you and God wants to use his grace to give you life. It's whether or not you believe that what he did on the cross was for you. Let's jump to Mark chapter 15, verses 37 and 39. And in a very unfortunate way, let's look at the last few moments of Jesus' life. Because what we do with the cross defines us. Jesus being resurrected from the grave means nothing if the sacrifice on the cross means, doesn't mean everything to us. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now, if you had never read the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, or John, then you would not understand what Mark did. Remember, Mark was the first gospel written. This would have been the first history from the eyes of a disciple to the audience. And the first person. Now, the book opens with that this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, verse 1. But when you go to chapter 15, the first person who without being asked confesses Jesus Christ as the Son of God is not a disciple. It's not a Jewish leader. It's not an Old Testament scholar. It is a renegade, barbaric Roman soldier. Now, don't picture a Roman soldier as a police officer whose job it is to live out ethically and make sure everyone's living at peace. This was a trained killer. His job was to torture. He was at the crucifixion because that's what his job was, is to make sure Jesus suffered and everybody saw him suffer so when they walked by the cross, they would understand, don't mess with Rome. And in that moment, Mark, writing to the first century believers, what is he doing by telling us that the first person upon his death to proclaim he was the son of God was a Roman? He's telling us, that no matter what you've done in your life, your shame can be erased at the cross. Amen. No matter who you are or what you've done, it belongs to Him. And it, where did He come to this conclusion? There's two things. First of all, the temple curtain was torn. And I know that's symbolic for many of us, but doing some research, uh, a friend of mine, Bryce Hotchkiss, who preaches in Pittsburgh, he, he sent me this fact that he found out. It's a great little line. I told him I'm stealing it. I told him I wasn't going to give him credit, but I like him, so I will. He says that the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem, in, in the great city, was 60 feet wide. Now, Brad just told me the curtain that runs backstage across our back, back of our stage is 60 or is 40 feet wide. So it's 20 feet wider than this staging, probably to the end of both screens, And it was 30 feet high. Our back curtain is 12 feet. Can you see the immensity of this curtain? What Bryce found out that was fascinating was when they took the temple curtain down to clean it, it took 300 men to submerge it underwater. If it's that big and it takes that many, it probably took 1,000 men to get it out of the water. It was an immense piece, four inches thick of woolen material, and it tore from top to bottom. Now, many of us think, when we study Old Testament history, that the temple curtain was in place uh, to keep us from going into the presence of a holy God. You know that a priest could only go in if he had been uh, sprinkled and cleansed by the blood of a perfect lamb. And then he, he was, his hands, his earlobe, there was a symbolic thing they did with the blood. And then by being cleaned by the sacrifice of blood, they could walk into the Holy of Holies. But they would even tie a rope on the ankle of a priest, so if he happened to have a heart attack and die while serving in the temple, no heathen could go in and get him, so they would just drag him out. Real touching, sentimental moment there, right? There was a fear in the culture to go into there. But the, the fear wasn't, this is important, The veil wasn't to keep us from seeing God. It was to keep God's holiness from crushing us. The temple protected us, not God. It was there to keep us from encountering the holiness of God because how many times did someone say, God, show me your glory, and he said, I can't. It would crush you. But in this case, the temple kept us from the holiness of God, not God from us. And on that day, that Jesus fulfilled his relentless pursuit. The curtain tore from the top to the bottom. And what did it say? The holiness of God is no longer a threat to us. It's an invitation. No longer would there need to be a sacrifice. No longer would there need to be any more bloodshed. What Jesus just did was open us all up to the saving, redeeming, grace-filled blood of God. And by doing that, Your shame should have been left at the cross because the temple is open, the holiness of God is available, all because of what Jesus did. And then, Mark says, the centurion concluded not only with the temple curtain being torn, but how he died. And he said, he's the son of God. What he said was, he's not just the man. You see, in those moments, what he heard at the cross, what standing there at the foot of the cross, he heard Jesus say these words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He saw him, while being tortured, he said, God, don't hold this against them. When when he said to the, the, the two criminals on his right and his left, he said to the one, today you'll be with me in paradise. When he saw his mother weeping at the foot of the cross, he said to John, behold, this woman, your mother, and behold, this man, your son. And John took Mary away from the graphic scene. This centurion heard him cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He heard him cry, I thirst. And he saw the Romans reach in and take a sponge that would have been used to wipe the backside of a person after they defecated. That's how they cleansed themselves. They would take this sponge, and they would dip it in this water or vinegar, and they would rub it on their rear ends to wipe off anything, and they used that and shoved it in our God's face. And then he heard him say, It is finished. And into thy hands, Father, I commit my spirit. But Mark only records this is beautiful. Mark only records one statement on the cross. Mark records the moment that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? Think of all the things we would have cried My hands, my feet, my head, my back. My agony, my humiliation. I would have cried all of those things. And Jesus never did. All he cried, the greatest moment of pain for him, was the moment that the sins of the world were placed on him and everything was made right for us and it all was wrong for him. And then he said, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When this was all completed, the Roman soldier looked up and said, that's not just a man. That was God's son. Because only God's son could be so relentless to do the things that none of us would be able to do. And to do them for a group of people who at the moment had no idea what had been done. You see, church, here's what I want us to know today. His relentless pursuit needs to become ours to study how focused and disciplined and purposeful he was is wonderful information. It's inspiring. But if it doesn't translate by the grace of Jesus for us to drop our shame from our lives of brokenness, sinfulness, and willfulness, to enter into the cleansing of the power that his relentless, relentless pursuit now becomes mine. The curtain has been ripped from top to bottom. It doesn't matter who you are. It's torn. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's torn. It doesn't matter how you might fail going forward. The curtain will never go up again. The holiness of God is no longer a threat to us. It's an invitation. What Jesus did was not for one moment in 29 AD. It was for eternity for every single one of us. So today, we're a weird group of people. We celebrate death. We celebrate blood. We celebrate an earthquake that tore a curtain. We celebrate things that the world says is old time, old fashioned myth. And I'm here to tell you today it isn't. Because the holiness of God is no longer a threat to us. The holiness of God is an invitation to enter into a relentless pursuit by the grace of Jesus to proclaim the good news. That the curtain is open and God is available to all. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.